This is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance. This is podcast number 35, is it? I don't know. Um, 30-something. And with me in New York is Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. Uh, in Toronto, Corey Morningstar. Hello, Corey. Hey. Hi. And in Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hello, Johan. Hello. Um, so, uh, I think that, that everybody has been, because we, we've talked about some of this stuff during the week and, um, and, and in emails and, and texts to each other that, that the, the sense of accumulative psychological damage, um, that people are feeling. And, um, I think the most obvious and uh, it's, it's felt most obviously and most acutely by children. And that's a huge topic, but I think it's felt by the general public um, overall far more than people admit to themselves or, or, or recognize in themselves. And that's probably true of me as well. I, I feel that I've become extraordinarily ill-tempered and impatient um and and i i can i can feel this and my only explanation is that it just has started to get to me the 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 naked dishonesty of this whole narrative that that is being trotted out for people and you go to stores and you see families now in masks uh and there is literally virtually no infection no so-called cases in quotation marks uh in norway there's virtually none and yet the easter statement by the government was because infection rates are unstable we are instituting strict guidelines for travel and numbers of people over easter now i don't know what that means infection rates are unstable what does that mean i have no idea uh but so i think let's let's talk about some of that johan yeah i thought i might just start us all off with a with a, a little discussion based in uh, frankfurt school's uh, theory on how the authoritarian personality emerges in western societies if that's fine with you all yeah i think this relates very well to to this this psychoanalysis of the COVID situation in in a broader sense. Great, yeah. Uh, and Adorno's view uh, that was, it was basically it was that human beings under modern industrial capitalism are in a sense damaged by by domestication to such an extent that we don't really have a, a balanced and independent sense of self in relation to others. And, and they, they were mired in psychoanalysis. So they expressed this in Freudian terms as a weakness of the ego in relation to the societal superego, uh, which I would translate as um, our rational agency and actual independence are so eroded that society's uh, systems of symbolic authority, to some extent, usurp our own capacity for self-determination. So. You and, I, you and I become dependent upon authority at the core of our very identity. So as anarchists phrase it, this uh, cop inside our own heads develop. Uh, and 
And from this dependence, Adorno and, and his friends argued that what they call the authoritarian personality emerges, which they found were widespread in Western societies. You, you kind of get broken people with no real agency of their own who both are dependent upon submitting to the biggest uh, monkey around to feel secure, while also being libidinously attached to the, the vicarious participation in the exercise of power. And this is especially relevant when it comes to the punishment of social deviants, which is something that then confirms the role and the identity of this submissive authoritarian. So to sum up, they, they would, beginning with this theory, you could argue that the, the COVID situation strongly actualizes and kind of supercharges these underlying authoritarian structures of the Western society. Uh, can you guys relate to this hypothesis from, from your own situation? Do you, do you find it plausible? Well, I think it's it's largely true. I mean, the the Frankfurt School has has um, gone in and out of favor over forty years. I'm a big Frankfurt guy, but uh, there's a terrific introduction um, written by Adorno's best translator, Robert Hulo Kentor, uh, who I think teaches at Columbia. But he wrote an introduction to um, his book on Adorno, um, the title of which escapes me, but I'll put it, I'll put a link to it um, when we post this podcast. And he talks about why Adorno feels and the Frankfurt School by extension feels so accusatory to people um, today. And that, that Adorno is probably more relevant than ever. And, mm. and I'm working on a blog post currently and a lot of it, I've, I've gone back to Robert Bly's essays on, on poetry, and, and he has a new book out on fairy tales. And it's very, very interesting. Um, and he has a kind of both Freudian and Jungian take on it. But, uh, but Bly's in his 90s now. And then I was thinking about Peter Brook, who's I think is 96. Um, Hanke is quite old. Heiner Mueller is dead. Um, and, and as I was writing this, I, I was thinking, I don't see replacements for these figures, that, that the, culture, um, the culture is so denuded and, and barren now. And those kind of teachers, those kind of voices are really absent. And that, that's part of when 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 we mount this political critique and and psychoanalytic in a way there's a it there is a political critique there are people dissenting and and formulating a critique but there's very little cultural um accompaniment to that or support mm -hmm. for that and i think that's quite quite harmful overall but um Corey, do you have any thoughts here on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with what Johan is speaking about. And I mean, the fear, the fear factor, the fear is which will um, make people, you know, that like what we see with people that identify as left. And now we see them rushing into the arms of the oppressor to, to be saved, basically. 
and that's driven by mm. fear like um you know psychologically that's what fear does that is why it sees as a weapon against us and if you look at the propaganda this is exactly like the war on terror you know after 9 11 yeah. the war on terror and it's the same language you know red alert and um you know it's just every time you turn on the radio that's all that's happening in, in the world covid 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 it's a fear campaign you know this is actually like a massive it's a global um psyop it really is you know right. driven by fear and um you know it's it the enemy is always invisible right mm -hmm. yeah no and and uh, no fear is i don't i know that i have never seen um people so terrified as they are now and um uh uh it's palpable and and it's it's a fear that increasingly is distanced from the medical fear. It's now become an existential fear of some sort because there is no rational reason to fear a virus with such a high survival rate. There just uh, John, can, can I just quickly read the latest survival rate stat? Yeah, I'm... please do. Um, so this is um, put out by... It's referenced by J. Bat, Bat, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, Bhattacharya, Professor mm -hmm. of Medicine, Stanford University. This just came, um, this reference was March. So the median infection survival re uh, rate, actually I'll start here. According to a meta-analysis uh, meta meta by Dr. John I. Own Edis, Professor of Medicine at Stanford University, um, of every seroprevalence study conducted to date a publication with a supporting scientific paper, 74 estimates from 61 studies and 51 different localities around the world, the median infection survival rate from COVID-19 infection is 99.77%. For, for COVID-19 patients under 70, the meta-analysis finds an infection survival rate of 99.95%. That's almost 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I said before, the last data I got on children under the age of 12, there was a total of globally, a total of 178 deaths total. So that's statistical immunity that's the definition of immunity that's with covid that's not yeah that doesn't mean from yeah. covid from covid johan yeah yeah i think this um i i think you phrased it very well cory I, I think the best best way to make sense of this uh, theory of the authoritarian personality is to frame it as uh, some kind of uh, where the the abused identify with the aggressor i think this is the best way to understand it and uh so if you if you if you interpret uh, adorno's uh, theory in this way the idea would be then be that the general situation under late stage capitalism is inherently traumatic and, and that this uh, traumatic situation then causes people to identify with the system as an aggressor 
at the, the very basic level of our personality. So we, we internalize the worldview and, and values and power structure of the system. And when you do this, uh, it, any narrative that describes threats to the system will be interpreted as an existential threat to yourself, notwithstanding whether it can be irrational or not. If it's a narrative that uh, like uh, gets spread around, it doesn't matter if it's incoherent or if it's, all it needs to do is to target these emotional attachments. And I think that's what we see with this discrepancy between facts and narrative that you just uh, referenced. Well, I think that's, I think that's, really an important point in a sense because take the wearing of masks uh nobody i think if you if you pressed them on it um nobody believes wearing a mask actually prevents you from catching a virus if if you come into contact with a virus it's purely symbolic but it's but it's but it's a a symbol of being a good citizen and being virtuous and responsible and you feel part of a, a, a body that is virtuous and 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 uh, you know uh, doing the right thing for your society etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think this has been the response to this has been so um enthusiastic because there was such a need in this society for people to feel as if they belong to something uh in general it's a terribly atomized lonely existence i mean there is no sense of collective purpose so suddenly this is a is a ready-made purpose in which people um and they so they have responded i think reflexively and, and perhaps not very um you know without a great deal of reflection probably but but it it allows them to to you know to feel good and i mentioned that there was a a memorial for an actor i knew the other day on zoom and as everybody was chatting at the beginning of it somebody said oh everybody had their shots the assumption being that of course this was what everybody was going to do and everybody responded yes um because they then could share that moment of virtue with everybody else and and so i think this this partly again goes back to the cultural aspect that that there is such a sense of i don't know lostness and despair out there uh but i do want to say again let me just interrupt myself and say again, I'm more and more convinced that the response to the propaganda has cuts across class lines. Um, I think people who work blue collar workers who um, have to go out in the world and rely on things to feed their family, things being back to some degree of normalcy to feed their family and themselves. They don't buy this. They are hugely skeptical. Um, the kind of artistic, hot bourgeoisie, white, liberal, educated, urban, they enthusiastically embrace this. Um, and they show seemingly no skepticism. 
this is my, you know, it's maybe more than anecdotal, but it's, it's my sense of things. Anyway, um, so Hiroyuki? Um, it, yes, I, I really think this um, uh, explanation of uh, uh, internalization of authority uh, figures in the uh, subject population is uh, very, very important. It, it explains a lot of things. If the um, uh, part of yourself that's speaking is not even you, it um, and it yeah. is the uh, external authority, it explains uh, the intensity of um, um, people demanding people to wear masks, uh, stay home, whatever uh, they are told, um, because it's uh, it's about them. It's it's they get defensive, and if we criticize them, they get adamant. They are they feel like they're being attacked. They're part of their uh, identity is being attacked because authority fear is them. So this is really an important. Um, idea that we all should understand and also it explains the fact that the uh, the resistance is only coming from the right wing and also um, uh, peripheral uh, people here and there but the majority of the people coming from the uh, uh, the mainstream idea of uh, uh, democracy uh, Western democracy, freedom, uh, justice, under the uh, uh, um, um, authority of the uh, uh, the U.S. government. So it is not uh, going beyond uh, uh, what we should. Uh, uh, what's happening? So. Uh, what John was saying about the blue color people, they, they would uh, resist, they would oppose, but they are talking about um, uh, maybe more of a, um, along the line of uh, make, the, uh, make America great again. Um, they sure. they wanna mm. uh, insist that freedom and you know justice guaranteed by the constitution of the United States, which was built by the slave owning colonizers and uh, all the mechanisms of, you know, perpetuation of power is um, incorporated in the structure. So it's a, it, it, it's really a, it's a tough situation. And that's why it's not about reason. That's not, it's about mm -hmm. logic. You know, you can't talk to them because no, no, when we address not about reason yeah yeah i mean when we're talking about this and talking to them we're not talking to them we're talking to the um, <laughs> you know internalized um, authority figure you know the little uncle son uh living in their heads so it's a uh, you know um this is an important discussion so we should really you know get into it and talk about it um I want it, yeah, and and I I I would like to, and we shall. Um, I did want to ask Corey. Corey put yeah. out some terrific um, posts and and articles this week, and everybody should read them. 
Um, they really were very good, and, and and they're always good. But this week was particularly resonant, I think. And I wanted to talk a little bit because you wrote about studies, and and I know I posted a couple of things too um, in social media about studies on the harmful effects the lockdowns have had for children. Yeah, let me jump in right here, John. Okay, so I want to make a quote. This is Dr. Richard. Delorme, Delorme perhaps is the same, uh, Robert Debray Pediatric Hospital, France. And he, he, he writes in an article um, on a publication, fee.org, he writes, we sometimes have children of nine who already want to die. And it's not simply a provocation or uh, blackmail via suicide. It is a genuine wish to end their lives. I mean, he says the damage we're inflicting on children is too devastating to be waved away in the name of public health. It's quickly becoming an emergency in its own right. And so they're warning um, the headline, the actual title is child suicide is becoming an international epidemic amid restricted pandemic life. Doctors are warning this. So, and then this was followed. There is a huge um, article or an in-depth article, let's say, in CBC in Canada last week. And then I saw an Ontario doctor post about it. And he said, you know, he he actually wrote, I've been thinking about this article all week. And the fact that this has been allowed to continue the day this was published, he said, shame on all of us. This should have stopped the day this was published. Right. And so we have a lot of um, health professionals who have been sounding the alarm on this for months. It's not this didn't just come out in the past week, but I I want to talk about why this is happening. So um, in Ontario, and I think it's probably relatively the same all over where we're in now what they're calling third wave headlines are variants coming very, you know, frightening, terrifying, um, red alert you know, again, fear, 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 beating overhead with fear. This is shock and awe, okay? This is shock and awe. And what's happening right now is everyone is distracted and um, hysterical over, you know, this media-induced fear. What they've done, the, the educational system is ready to, on a dime, ready to switch right over to remote learning. Okay, so this is strategy. Um, we will see, I'm sure within months in the States, there's already States that have gone full remote that have not even, um, stepped back. A lot of them, like what happened in Ontario, they went full remote. It was a disaster. They stepped back and said, we're going to do hybrid learning or blended learning. And then they brought in this, the, te- the, you know, they, oh, you know, we, you, they pretend they care. We have to get the kids back to school. They need to be back to school, right. Pretending that they're listening to, um, parents and health officials, they bring them back and then, oh, you know, like what happened, right? Oh, um, cases, cases, cases. We've got to close down again. And so shock and awe, right? Yeah. And so what's going to happen by the end of the year, it's all going to be, um, like I said, the, um, minis- the, I can't think that, whatever, directors of different school boards and that have all kinds of um articles where I've documented them saying, you know, it's incredible. We have 70,000 students in our district. We represent over 160 schools across 200 kilometers. And this is, um, I'm referring to something that was published in November. And he says, and we've had one case, 
We've had one COVID case. That's not a death. That's a case, right? And all of this, we've got all these kids mass. We have kids killing themselves. We have depression. So it's very, very, you know, the end justifies the means ideology. Like we're literally throwing our children to the wolves for this fourth industrial revolution to take hold, to come into, uh, to be cemented into place. And where are our teachers? Where are the parents? Where are the unions? They're actually striking against going back to school, which pisses me right off because I've always been a huge advocate of unions, you know, even though they're obviously corrupt in a lot of ways, like everything else has become. Um, with all the corporate influence. But um, yeah, these same people who, who don't want to be near the children, of course, children are feeling this way when we're telling them that they're disease vectors and dirty and making everyone die and making everyone sick. Like, what do yeah. we fucking expect? Right? Yeah. So anyway, yeah, this is important. And we have to talk about this and recognize what this is. This is a switch to remote learning where Bill Gates and Facebook and Amazon will be in charge of your children's ideologies going forward in life. They are going to shape and mold your children's minds. I mean, corporations already are doing that, right? Um, by way of their direct contact with your children through the mobile, which you have no idea actually what they're doing or who they're talking to or what yeah. information and data is being gathered on them, right? But they know that they know your child more th better than you do. Now it's another step, full remote learning. This is fucking crazy. We have yeah. to stop this. Wake up. Well, <laughs> no, it, I mean, it's absolute madness and i've read um a number of other studies and and articles uh in the u.s in europe uh one in denmark i believe uh about the damage psychologically to children spikes in depression self-harm um and and yet uh it seems to have made very little dent in um in government policy johan yeah, I just want to state something obvious and, and then ask a question uh, regarding kids and the, the fear campaign. I mean, children growing up in a in a secular society, they, they first of all, they don't have any the psychic integrity or support structure to to uh, to shield themselves from from the, the what's going on around them as as adults do. So, so I mean, they, they suck everything up like a sponge. And as for the secular aspect of society, that, that, that's going to mean that the highest authority is, uh, you know, the, the surrounding social structure, the, the society, civilization. And to see that that is in some sense unraveling before their eyes, I, I can't imagine how, how traumatic this can be for many children. Uh, I, I was also just wondering, Corey, uh, how you... I mean, I can imagine that uh, implementing remote learning would be an important step to, to create the habits necessary for a more complete digitalization of society and so on. Uh, but, but do you see any other important factors like a profit motive for bringing uh, remote learning? About? Um, well, in actually in April next month, World Economic Forum has announced a global technological governance type of summer. I don't know. Um, summit, sorry. 
And it's all about shaping the data economy. If you go back to last year, you've got the IMF talking about the new data economy. And they have, um, you know, a blurb about what this um, particular um, panel will talk about. And it's about how every child by the age of 18 has set, I think they said 70,000 data points, right? So our children are being... Um, they're human capital now, right? They're being, they're recognized now as um, data commodities, right? Mm -hmm. And there's another element of this, which goes beyond profit motive. And I think people are overlooking this. I can't really uh, say this enough. This is right now, um, the past year, they are how do I say this? Okay, so it's the severing of human bond. Children are being told, don't touch your parents, don't touch your teachers, don't talk, don't open your mouth, right? Don't touch anything. Um, stay away. Um, they're not getting the the physical touch they need. They're not being, you know, like this whole physical thing. Meanwhile, so the, the human bond is being deliberately and st strategically severed while that technological bond is being strengthened. They call it this. I, I've gone back. I found back to 2017 World Economic Forum talking about future education. They want children bonding with technology. Right now we have the severing of human bond the strengthening of the technological bond. It's a real thing. This is what we're doing to our children now. You know, again, again, biological danger, um, digital, artificial safe. Right. It's conditioning, well, I, conditioning. I, I think that, that, I mean, you can see the way in which, I mean, speaking of the Frankfurt School a minute ago, the way in which those early critiques have proven to be extraordinarily prescient and, and that instrumental thinking, what Horkheimer called instrumental thinking, this mm -hmm. logical positivist, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, manner of digesting the world and, and internalizing the world has led also to specialization, the notion of experts mm -hmm. and, and ever more specialized fields. People, be, it, it just keeps extrapolating. Um, one specialization becomes even more specialized and that becomes even more specialized. And with each of those steps, a certain part of your uh, and, and Bly was talking about this. It'd be a certain part of your desire and emotional life is jettisoned um, and atrophies. And certainly, I think everybody has had the experience of um, of talking to so-called experts, specialists, scientists, <clears throat> whatever field they are in, who are extraordinarily ignorant of the world around them, except for their field, and that their expertise in that field does not allow them to uh, connect the truths of their very narrow specialization um, to the world at large. That's a job for other experts. And, uh, and, but I think it has had a psychological um, impact societally. 
I think you're looking at people that were primed to become um, identifiers with technology because they they all the preconditions for seeing technology as better than biology were already in place and and a lot of this was was the logic of capitalism in fact johan <laughs> yeah, yeah i think this is a hugely important discussion I, I just wanted to mention that this this process of specialization goes as, as far back as civilization i would say and even the i don't know if i mentioned that in a, in a previous discussion but the, the ancient Greeks in the Athenian democracy, they, they, had a, they didn't trust experts because they, they were considered to having enslaved their minds in the way you describe here, already back then. Well, I think, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I think that, that this um, is reflected in, in um, the state of culture as well. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, you can look at the arc um, in fine arts from mid-century, from the beginning of the 20th century, uh, in in Weimar Germany, in, with the Bauhaus, the, the constructivists in the Soviet Union, the rise of modernism, all the way through abstract expressionism after the end of World War II. And I've said before that abstract expressionism was the last sincere movement, artistic sincerity, and it, it morphed slowly, uh, incrementally into something that was almost entirely ironic. And, uh, and that, that somehow, the, that logic is fits seamlessly with the idea of specialization and um, um, an atrophying uh, emotional life, um, an atrophied dream life, uh, and and a, a denial of the unconscious almost. Um, so so that you really and and look, this is when you look back at writers like Kafka. Um, this is on one level what his stories were always parables about uh and and it today i've mentioned before people in their 90s Bly and peter brook and whoever um uh there is there is no replacement there is the professionalization of the arts and and um there's been very little noteworthy um uh movements or even noteworthy artists in any field I can think of, frankly, very few um, compared to say 60 years ago. Um, but Hiroyuki, what did, this is. Right. I mean, something um, close I, to you. <laughs> I, well, right. Um, it, it also, um, I, I always think about uh, how we relate uh, to the whole thing as an artist, but, but before you know, we talk even talk about it, um, as we are chopped up, uh, specialized, uh, losing uh, connection to each other, and um, um, all these, um, we should really remember that um, there are people who have access to all of it. The people, the ruling class people, they have access to everything. 
they can control education, they can control internet, they can control industries. They have, they are different. They can come up with um, a lot of creative solutions to perpetuate whatever they do. And uh, if, like, if you read uh, what uh, Klaus Schwab is saying, there's a lot of creative thinking going there. <laughs> and it is very, very crazy. And um, it's possible for him to come up with all these things because he and his buddies have access to things we don't have access to. So this is, again, this is very, very much structural uh, arrangement, which is very, very destructive. It deprives everything from us and it gives everything to the people who control those things. And they have personal interests in perpetuating what they're doing with the expense of everybody else. And this is the authority figure. And that's why it's okay to sacrifice everything, sacrifice children. You know, we remember like um, uh, Madeleine Albright was saying, um, it's worth to kill half million uh, Iraqi children. And people sort of went along with it. You know, well, Biden just listed Madeleine Albright as, as one of his ideals. Um, <laughs> uh, the ideal was to be Madeleine Albright. Right, um, right. I want to get back to the children, though, in terms of, of the, because we started, I'm guilty of moving it away from that i think this is this is extraordinarily important and and i'm and i'm and i really have been stunned and and almost speechless and and numb uh watching it unfold and and you can't find an educator in in the u.s uk europe you can't find an educator with any years of experience who will not tell you the destructive nature of social media and cell phones, smartphones, um, and what that has done um, to, to teenagers and even preteens now. Um, there's, <clears throat> you know, countless volumes, books out, um, dissecting what what this effect is the psychological implications of it and anybody who teaches at school has seen it um and and yet uh and yet the, there continues to be this push that Corey just outlined towards you know furthering um this this distance, this detachment from the real world and from other people. It's extraordinarily anti-human um, and terrifying in, in, in that, to that extent. Um, yeah, Corey, do you want to? <sighs> well, Nobody's using care. their little hands, see? So I'm just calling <laughs> on you. I'm so... We, about we abhor dead yeah, air. You know, nature abhors a vacuum and John abhors dead air. So, so okay. So human... Um, MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative, um, quote unquote, 
human behavior responds to emotion, not science. So here we have the deploying of fear as a weapon against the global citizenry as an effective means of coercing social license for the very infrastructure that will further enslave and harm the natural world. So here we see the transition of our children into, into data commodities. So what this means is going forward, the remote learning, everything that's happening to push that. Um, it's not a value for your children to play outside. It's a value for your child to be on the machine. That's where the data is. That's where the money is. That's where this new data economy is going to go, right? It's not a value for your teenager or young person to go out and be experimenting um, and enjoying sex for the first time, do that on the internet, like we talked about the last show, right? Asexual. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a value for you to be spending time with your family at the park. Get back on your machine, right? Create that data for the new data economy. So again, this is where we're going. In an article I published last week, um, written by a California teacher, he writes in which I think every teacher should read. He writes that this infrastructure that um, is, like you said, John, it's destroying um, the youth. We should rip it out of the schools. You know, yeah. that like that's what has to be done. And that's what should be done. Um, and I, I'm in full, I'm in full agreement. If I went around and I talked to all the parents I, I know and that I've known for the past 20 years, and I asked them, has this technology made your child happier? Has it improved your family, your quality of life? There's no one that would say yes. Kids mm -hmm. are all fucked up from this. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Completely. And see, but the thing is, the thing is, let me just interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, no, but no. the thing is, but this is really important because I agree. I don't know a single parent that would say their, their child's life is better or richer or, or that the child is better adjusted because of this technology. And yet what happened with COVID was they got scared. They've been terrorized with this constant bombardment of, you know, kind of death figures, statistics, um, cases rising. Now, you know, as I said, in Norway, infections are unstable. It's meaningless, but it's scary sounding. Everything is scary sounding. And so in spite of the, the recognition that, that this digital technology is not a great educational tool, in fact, it's a harmful tool, they've so, sort of suspended that, that understanding um, because this is a state of emergency. And in the state of emergency, there's this horrible virus that, you know, never mind children are immune to it. That doesn't matter. Everybody's scared. They might somehow be carriers of it magically and infect grandma. Um, and so I know a teacher here in Norway um, who's a wonderful woman. She's a terrific woman um, and, and um, a music teacher. And, and I admire her and her husband enormously. Um, and yet, and yet, you know, um, she is she is teaching with like all kinds of, you know, rules for distancing and, and masks and all of this stuff, because she has she has identified very strongly with there being this invisible threat out there. Um, Johan, yeah. I'm not sure Corey was finished with her. No, no, I'm done. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm just uh, thinking uh, we, we can connect this back to the 
identification with the system because I, I would argue that to create attachments to technology in children will catalyze and further this general identification with the system for the population as a whole, as a, at a deeper level. And it's also that digital technology is it's uh, inherently stimulating, it's fun, it's uh, accessible and it, it's rewarding. So, so this, this will be like the, the, it's the path of least resistance in many ways. I, I was also thinking about a related thing I've been uh, uh, reflecting upon a for a few years now. And I'm, I'm not sure if this, uh, I haven't done any studies and so on, but it seems to me that the subcultures are basically gone. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, there, there were several uh, prominent and, and uh, lively subcultures, which uh, were in various ways oppositional and, and rebelled against society in general. But I don't really see that thing anymore in society, uh, digital or, or uh, meat space. Uh, is this something you recognize too? Absolutely. And, and I do want to go back to you, Corey, because I interrupted you and, and I want to get back to that thought. But I do see this. This is part of the loss of the avant-garde culturally, yeah. artistically. Um, after Vietnam, the loss of an alternative press. Um, these things had enormous um, value. And there was, um, you know, the old truism about, I think they were, originally I heard it in relation um, to Barry Goldwater, but they said the problem was he was never a radical. As a teenager, he was never a radical. And that was the old joke about Richard Nixon. Uh, he got a briefcase for his birthday, for his 12th birthday, and liked it. And so, but that's what we're seeing now in substitute smartphone. And, and there you have it. And that has, that has replaced community and subculture and alternative avant-garde movements of all kinds. They have all kind of evaporated. Mm. And, you know, I see the older generation, people who are sort of my contemporaries are enormously apathetic now. They've all been put to sleep somehow. And it's it's kind of horrifying to me, but, but yeah. I, but so I, I think that's a really important point. Um, Corey. Well, just adding to that, now we even see, I mean, there's a lot of really strange um, behaviors that are starting to come out through this and the whole um, apathetic um, attitude towards now children and infants now are being enrolled in these vaccine studies, six months to 12 years old, right? They don't, as you said, they don't even, they're impervious to the, to the virus, and now we're doing mRNA um, studies within these infants and children. I mean, to me, this is clear. This is child abuse. They did not consent. A child right. cannot consent. An infant cannot consent. These have never been child in humans before. I, I mean, this mRNA, this, these vaccines, this whole purpose is biotech. This is the foundation of biotechnology. Right. If you look at stocks, biotechnology, stocks are going through the roof. These mm. are emerging markets. Mm. Okay. And then getting back to, you know, about the um, Madeleine Albright, Albright, Albright um, and the, her comment about the children, um, you know, we think the price is worth it. 
like, do we really think these same, um, you know, that these same entities, the ruling class gives a fuck about our children just because they're white? I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a boy. Let me, that's a significant point. And I, I think that all of you saw that interview with the Holocaust survivor, um, whatever. I always forget her name, Vera something. Shabrov, I will maybe include the link on this podcast. Um, and she was drawing comparisons to, to the rise of Nazism, National Socialism in Germany, and that people refused to look at it. It was the equivalent, she said, of calling people um, conspiracy theorists at the time. She said, we didn't use that word, but that's what was going on. Um, because there were warnings, and the majority of Jews in Germany ignored that and in neighboring countries ignored it, ignored the warnings. Um, there is an, you know, this great reset. This is, there is an agenda here. Um, now how organized that is, how, how deep that the tentacles of that agenda extend into government is an open question because one starts to get a little, um, cuckoo um if you can follow that logic down a rabbit hole but it is clear that people like gates and and um a lot of the klaus schwab minions um these people have an agenda and part of that agenda is the depopulation idea and and the the overpopulation um theory debunked though it has been for 50 years and more debunked today than ever before still is ubiquitous i see it everywhere i see it 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 um on social media in fact johan and i were on the same thread this week with a woman who would not would not hear didn't want to discuss she was absolutely convinced didn't want to discuss any alternative reading of there's too many people so that that depopulation idea runs through this and it's terrifying. Now, again, it, you know, I don't know this. It's a conspiracy. Yeah, there is a conspiracy out there. And part of it is this sort of the vanguard group of the ruling class. And that's all I can say. I don't know beyond that. I can <clears throat> I can surmise things and I can guess at things. And I know that I find it kind of terrifying. Um, but you know, exhibit A is we've been locked down for a year and a half for a virus with a 99.77% survival rate. And everybody should sit down and ponder that for a moment. Um, a year and a half. Originally, it was flattened the curve two weeks, three weeks, maybe a month. Um, so, so something is going on. And I, I sit here in Norway, a sparsely populated country, uh, with very few infections, very few hospitalizations, and very few deaths, and we're locked down still here. Um, Corey. Yeah, to add to that, I think people, that's been lost, okay? So this was never about people not getting this virus. It can't be contained, right? It's The virus is going to spread through the populace. That's what Absolutely. it does. And so at the beginning, it was a matter of, okay, we don't know what's going to happen. This is what the narrative, right, that they have. We, we don't know what's going to happen, but it looks like based on the infamous imperial paper that it could just overwhelm 
our hospitals and we won't be able to manage it. So we're going to slow it down. That's all it was for, to slow it down. And then, um, you know, as, as we went forward, um, you know, we, we saw like the, the big thing at the beginning was um, likely due to the use of the ventilators, which I think we discussed last show, or maybe, I don't know, maybe that was a different show I was listening to um, or a lecture. But anyway, it was never to prevent people from getting the virus. It was always to prevent the hospitals being overwhelmed. But what happened, the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. The hospital, are, we're moving to telehealth. We're moving to privatize universal health care by 2030. Right, all this is happening under the guise that I mean, Klaus Schwab calls this COVID is our watershed moment. Right, this is the time to yep. to ram everything through. Right, and so it's being um, completely um, leveraged in every way. And so again, it was just never about that. Um, even this whole thing with all of a sudden our immune systems, like it's like sort of like nature deficit disorder. Now we're we've develop some sort of dysmorphia with their own immune systems. We don't believe in them. It's conspiracy theory. We need a vaccine. If you look at, I came across a lecture, a paper with the word zero survey, right? And I was like, oh, what's that? Um, you know, and that's basically tracking who has antibodies, right? And I started looking into that and I saw, oh, Delhi has achieved herd, herd immunity. And they know that from doing these thorough surveys. You won't hear of that here because we don't wanna talk about that. I mean, how many people are getting vaccines that have full immunity? How about all the people that already had it? I mean, it's, and why are we taking, why are we even injecting an experimental vaccine for a, a virus which most people have, according to who, mild to no symptoms? Right. I mean, no, right of course. This is is messed, so messed up on so many levels. Yeah. No, of course. The, I mean, the the it's a mild virus. It is apparently brutal for the very elderly or people with respiratory conditions. Um, children are, for all intents and purposes, immune. The very young, those in their twenties, early thirties, are for all intents and purposes immune. If they get it, they usually have no symptoms and are over it very quickly. And that's how immunity develops historically. That's always been how it develops. And somehow, all the rules have changed, and it really does speak to the power of propaganda. I mean. Um, where, where we're seeing the quarantining of healthy people and, and that healthy people uh, are, are seen as a threat uh, to everyone. Children, immune children are a threat. Everything becomes a threat. Well, and uh, look how long, John, that we, this has been going on. This is almost two years now. I mean, um, because this virus was detected way before Wuhan, right earlier in the year and at two or three different places. So how, how many populations have um, developed herd immunity, right? And, yeah. and why are we vaccinating them? Even in Kenya, they're having a difficult time getting Kenyans to take, to take this vaccine, um, you know, what they call vaccine hesitancy, because they're saying we've had it. Why do we need a vaccine? We're already immune to it. Right? right, but here that question's not even being asked. Let alone, where's the data? You can take, you can um, roll out daily all these cases, cases, cases. So why aren't you tracking who has the antibodies, right, and doing these serial surveys? 
You, you don't even hear those terms here because they don't want people thinking about it. You have to have the vaccine. And not only do you have to have that, you'll have to have it forever. Every year, right. booster right. shots, because it's never going away. And as Bloomberg said a week ago, we have to see this as a permanent pandemic. Okay. So this yeah. is the well, new that's... new war on terror. Yep. That's that's the new um, propaganda pitch. They, they're normalizing the idea that that this is forever this is not going away it's forever just adjust to it johan yeah so i think it was yesterday i am um, i saw there were two articles in in our major daily newspaper here in in sweden which uh, b- both of which discussed how, how these new strains are killing disproportionate amounts of quote-unquote younger people and one one article was uh, relating the situation in, in brazil which was uh, uh, apparently very dire for for younger people but, but my 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 question then becomes because these viruses they will they always mutate it's just the normal progression of, of yeah this exactly so, so uh, are, are we going to be faced with this um, as Corey says this the same uh, indefinite situation in in relation to every new strain that comes along that's the 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 main question I see when when we're encountered with these uh, these new strain and mutation narratives and so on. There's a, also a, a legal problems with the uh, experimental uh, vaccines. They have to prove that the uh, we have pandemic, and also we have to prove that there are no other alternative uh, treatments. So you know, it's obvious that the government policies are limiting the uh, treatment options. And also it is, uh, uh, you know, uh, emphasizing this risk and uh, all the numbers. And uh, it is it is very, very sinister um, situation. Absolutely is because they're, they're the, 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 the logic of the vaccination for a virus with a 99.97 survival rate, whatever it is, the logic for getting vaccinated is there is no logic. It makes no sense. Um, it actually makes very little sense because it doesn't prevent you from getting it anyway. All it does is lessen the symptoms and most people are asymptomatic to begin with. Um, and and then they've given it to a number of elderly people who have died. Uh, so they stopped doing that, at least in Norway, they stopped doing that for the moment. Um, but but all of all of all of the precedents for for pandemics and and plagues and everything going back in history to, to ancient Roman and um, the logic has 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 been turned on its head now and suddenly you know we're quarantining healthy people healthy people are perceived as as more of a threat than sick people even um and and this actor i know who died the other day um died because um because he was released from the hospital too soon um, and he hadn't been allowed any visitors because of COVID protocols. And this was a guy who needed visitors, believe me. Um, and, and probably uh, had more concerned friends, and he had lots of people who loved him, uh, been able to visit him and talk to him 
um, he he wouldn't have been released that way, and he wouldn't have died prematurely. Um, but but hospitals have have been compromised in a sense, and they've been turned into these. You know, I, the profit motive cuts across this, but the all this mythology of overrun hospitals is is simply not true, <clears throat> and yet it it is perpetuated and and we hear um a, a constant media um litany about you know overworked healthcare professionals nurses orderlies people on the so-called front lines there's always military metaphors the front lines in this war against this virus etc 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 um and yet Something like seventy percent of of healthcare workers are refusing the vaccination, um, a fact that the media tends to try to disappear. Um, Johan, yeah, I was just thinking about what um, Hiroyuki said uh, about the uh, how, how the the criticism only comes from the right, and I completely agree that w w the self-identified left is entrenched in the system in the way in the manner you speak i mean the, the left identifies with the, the system's good and humanitarian values with the narratives of progress and and i would also say with the triumphant redemptive scientism as i've used the concept uh, but but uh, the thing is the the right and especially the radical right they, they also identify with the system yet in a slightly different sense i would argue that the radical right kind of identifies with the, the system's negative aspects, uh, whereas its, uh, its version of triumphant scientism becomes social Darwinism and racism. Its version of the myth of progress becomes exclusivist and so on. And my point here is the, the right, and especially the radical right, is going to embrace narratives which are portrayed as contrarian within the official story. And this will, will uh, render these uh, narratives doubly sanitized because the right can only frame them within the system's own meta-narrative and the radical right is already the antagonist. So this will discredit the narratives. I think this is a, a, perhaps a, a, an interesting way to understand this, this dynamic where the left maintains most of the criticism. Yeah, well, it's, right. it is curious and... and and it's something I don't have a real answer for. And that's, that's a, I think, a pretty cogent take on it. Um, the, the, you know, we've seen two Republican states, Texas and Florida, opened for business. No restrictions, no masks, no social distancing. You can go to restaurants, spring break in Daytona Beach. Everybody's having a great time. And cases are down in both states. Um, and yet, and yet that kind of, I mean, look, the fact that, that hospitalizations and infections have gone down dramatically in Texas since it was opened up seems to not, I mean, that should be a huge story. That should be the end of the discussion. Everybody should go, well, okay, <laughs> so, uh, let's open everything up because clearly, um, the lockdown was bullshit and that's that, but it's not. But it's not. And that is there is something profound lurking in that that absence of a reaction 
to to these two states opening and and i don't have an answer for it fully um Corey, did you want to um, I just wanted you guys mentioned Brazil and I have also noticed, you know, a lot of headlines coming out about Brazil. And I just wanted to make a point that, um, in 2019, um, Sao Paulo announced the founding of a center for the fourth industrial revolution, um, um, headquarters in, in Brazil. And so we have them set up, I think in, I'm not sure what the number is right now. They're very, they're expanding rapidly across the globe. We have fourth revolution or sorry, center for fourth industrial revolution centers now in San Francisco, China, Japan, India, Colombia, Israel. Um, where else? I mean, you'd have to look it up. I don't have them all at my fingertips, mm-hmm. but basically, I mean, then you look there's nothing in Nicaragua. Nicaragua never bought into this, right? Um, Nicaragua it takes care of their people, right? They had communities, um, nurses go home to home. They didn't lock down schools. They haven't masked up children. They haven't done any of this. They've um, they're a shining example, you know. Of and instead, they're you know the media's frame them as you know. Um, the Sandinistas, you know, horrible. Um, Biden went after. I mean, Nicaragua's on the hit list, right? We know that. Um, So again, like, why, why do we have all this fear about Brazil? And why, why is there nothing happening in Nicaragua? And in fact, when I was reading one of these articles about all these um, unknowns about the vaccines, there's 120 or 130 countries, I think it's stated where there is no vaccination happening. So what's happening in those countries? Right, right. And then there's a story in Israel um, that was heavily vaccinated. um, And and, um, a couple of people have written about this uh, and a kind of cover up uh, about vaccine deaths there. And and I have no punchline to this, except that it, it seems like a story that should have a lot more exposure, but it's not. It's not forthcoming for some reason. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I, I think what what we're all kind of circling around and keep coming back to is that here we are in over a year and a half of lockdown, various kinds of restrictions in many, many countries. Um, some have intensified and grown Um, like Norway, in spite of the fact there's nobody sick here. Um, And and, uh, in the U.S., we see a really divided um, populace, uh, urban centers on the coasts, the the blue states um, are embracing the narrative. Places like Montana and and Wyoming and Texas, traditionally very conservative states um, have remained incredibly skeptical of it. And there's a huge working class in those places and, and they're skeptical of it. But, but the media is the story. The media is shaping perception. The media and the people who own the media are manufacturing this narrative and they are bombarding the public with it over and over and over and over 
um, and modifying certain things, shifting the emphasis and the focus each week to something new. But essentially, it is it is a constant refrain of 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 fear uh, to the degree that 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 shaping of the narrative is having concrete material effects in things like education um, because it's it coincides with the push for you know tele-education tele-health care and and all the rest of it that that Corey has written about extensively and and um and this is the reality and we talked last time about how hard it is to talk to people um about this and people are afraid to speak up and i understand that uh you don't want to be stigmatized and and ridiculed and made fun of um because uh because it's an unpleasant experience um yeah corey um let, yeah uh, i think johan has his hand up okay well i don't know who had this hand up first but okay <laughs> johan uh, i was just thinking about um uh, what, what occurs is from the perspective of the psychology of religion. Uh, I'm a philosopher of religion, so this isn't really my forte, but uh, an aspect of curses, and I'm, I'm not saying you can reduce curses to psychology, that there is no supernatural aspect and so on, but, but at least there is an important psychological aspect of curses anthropologically. And the way they work is basically that that you somehow actualize an established symbolic structure in, in a person's consciousness and perception. So that if I, for instance, were to curse you, John, you would have to believe that I've successfully cursed you and my invocations or symbols or whatever will actualize and, and activate certain meanings in your perception and in your worldview which can then engender something like the negative placebo effect in a broad manner. Uh, so, so you can't really rationalize away this curse because it's, it's actualizing meanings and, and symbols that are deeply, deeply entrenched, often in your subconscious and so on. And, and this, I think, can be a profitable uh, perspective looking at these, uh, this invocation-like uh, fear propaganda. Yes. Uh, Corey? Okay, so I remember <laughs> what I was going to say. Okay, so if, okay. If, if people can under, can see this as, right, as this terror campaign, as the catalyst to restructure the entire global economy, okay, so going forward into the fourth industrial revolution, if you can think of it like this, okay, how would they do this if this if there was no fear of this virus? How would they say we are going to remote learning? Your children will no longer have teachers. They'll be taught by AI. They're going to spend all day on computers. We're going to, um, you know, they're going to become data commodities. We're going to, you know, do away with teachers. They're no longer, um, you know, in the 21st century, they've become obsolete. We're going to replace all your jobs with automation and we're going to, um, you know, and we're going to test this RNA technology, mRNA technology that we need as the foundation going forward for biotech. We're going to 
need you to participate in this experiment so we can, you know, fine tune it and go forward. Um, we're going to close down physical hospitals and you're going to now get your health through the computer using apps. No one would go for this. No fucking way. We'd be like, no, no. Right. And so there's no other way to do this. There is no other way to do this. If we, if they say we have decided as part of the new um, global capitalist system, we're going to monetize all human social capital. We're going to monetize nature. We are going to be the new stewards of nature and um, monetize and assign a monetary price to all of it. We're going to enclose it. And we are also going to trade it and, and you know, trade nature on Wall Street, all, all of what's happening. No one would ever buy it. No one's going to tolerate it at all, at all. So how else would they do this? There is no other way. There isn't. This is it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And, and um, it, it, it becomes a very complicated discussion. And before I launch into something, Johan, you wanted to say something. So I just wanted to agree. I mean, and that's a really a very good argument because as you say, that there is no way that such a thing could be, it wouldn't be swallowed without like something hammering on the sub-rational drives without some kind of propaganda, without something like the, that curse thing I was talking about. So go on, John. No, just I think it's important to um, uh, Corey mentioned earlier that 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 Nicaragua now is in the crosshairs and so is Bolivia. Biden mentioned today he's very concerned about, um, the, you know, the opposition still being in jail in Bolivia. We must have clear transparency. I mean, these are the people that that orchestrated a fascist coup, but that's OK, you see. Um, so so what has to be remembered is this war on the global South and this kind of new colonial uh, uh, occupation of the global South. And of course the, the most obvious expression of that is, is U S military bases in something like 900 countries. Um, it, we have bases everywhere, virtually every country uh on the planet, and most of them are permanent bases. Um, we have bases in Afghanistan that have uh, movie theaters and street lights and Domino's Pizza. I mean, these are permanent places. They're little military cities. Um, and, and this is the recolonizing of the global South, and it really is a war. And uh, being being laid out the plans for it and the execution of it is happening as we speak and um and this is is hard to separate that violence from from the klaus schwabian violence as well the pushing through of a new economic order um, the monetizing of everything as Corey has laid out and and it is all of a piece you can't you can't really separate it. You have to understand that um, the doing of one thing is is codependent, is interrelated with the doing of the other thing. And I I despair often when I talk to people who might 
become a little skeptical of a Bill Gates rushed vaccine. And they might say, yeah, no, I don't really think I want the vaccine or something, but I'm sure glad Biden's president now and not Donald Trump. And as understandable as that is on a certain sort of rudimentary level, it speaks to a, a very big political problem when, when you, you're trying to, to, I guess, educate people to, to what is happening. It, it, becomes, it becomes a very complicated discussion and it's not a simple discussion. And people tend to read headlines and, and shut down when things get too complicated. This has been the effect of the loss of education over 60 years. Um, Hiroyuki, yeah. Um, well, um, I was um, just wanted to emphasize the fact that the, uh, uh, the in order to raise the uh, element of fear, um, I think the uh, uh, active policies of raising the death count has been implemented. The uh, I, I think we, there's no way, no way around uh, to disregard these. Um, things as uh, coincident or mismanagement, uh, if you think about the fact that how uh, like Cuomo, uh, New York State is connected to the uh, uh, Imperial uh, Network, and he's the one who um, limited the uh, um, treatment options. He's the one who introduced the uh, 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 option of uh, using ventilators to majority of the people. And also uh, he's the one who sent elderly to nursing home. And as I saw, uh, New, York's, New York Times, in, even New York Times is saying that the 40% uh, of the death um, in the States were coming from the uh, lockdown nursing homes. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is tremendous. And this explains the fact that some of the countries like Nicaragua doesn't have many death counts. It's, it's because it's, they are killed. <laughs> they committed murders systematically. The, the, you know? yeah, the, 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 propaganda, the propaganda apparatus is in overdrive all the time. And, and you know, you, I see things with you know, Anthony Fauci, America's doctor. And you just, you know, you, you want to laugh, cry, I don't know. Um, but, but this is, by and large, how people get their information, many people, not everyone. And there is resistance to this. And the thing is, that resistance has to become more organized. There is no real left party anywhere to help organize it. And, and, um, and, and this presents a, a problem. Yeah, Corey? I just wanted to add on to what um, Hiroyuki had mentioned about the long-term facility or long-term care um, numbers. And in Canada, that number actually of all the deaths with COVID, between 80 and 90% have occurred in the long-term care facilities, right? Wow. Which have been largely privatized in Canada. And so when we say, oh, protect the vulnerable, protect the vulnerable, well, that hasn't happened. All that, all the trillions of dollars that have been doled out have been um, going into these vaccine projects, right? Like the public puts up the costs and the risk and then the vaccine manufacturers, um, they take the ownership and the profits, right? And then we've paid for like this remote um, learning system. As I said, they've already acknowledged it can be turned on on a dime, it's in place. We've paid for all that. 
So the money's being being the money's being pumped into fourth industrial revolution architecture. And right? It's not being it's not being um doled out to protect vulnerable. It's not. It hasn't gone there. No. Well, I'm gonna um we sort of should probably wrap up here. And I just want to say in conclusion, and then if anybody has final thoughts, um, uh, I see Hiroyuki has his hand up. Um, we'll go there. But I think one of the, one of the key um, features of a resistance to all of this is what something Johan said, like subcultures, alternative press. I think that of course, this is me, but that, you know, this is called aesthetic resistance for a reason. I think culture matters enormously. I think it matters enormously to children who are the most creative beings on the planet. And that creativity and imagination um, is what is being, you know, driven out of them and killed. And on a, on a larger level, artistically and and through all all art forms all mediums in all ways there has to be a return to to um that kind of life i mean people have to be able to um see each other and meet together and have lunch together and have jam sessions and uh, poetry readings in person and concerts in person and museums have to be stopped from selling off the art that actually belongs to the people um, under the guise of, of some fake identity politics equality. All of this matters enormously. The resistance and the solution to the, this fourth industrial revolution nightmare neo-Nazi-like takeover is going to come in some part, if not a large part, from from a cultural renaissance, I think. So, okay, final thoughts from everybody, Hiroyuki Kori and Johan. Um, um, since we started out as, um, uh, we were talking about the uh, effects for the children, um, I think it's really important to remember that before um, the, pan, uh, the virus situation uh, unfolded, uh, children were uh, enlisted in the, the um, this momentum for green capitalism. They were told that they're going to all die in 12 years. Yes. This, this is tremendous, tremendous um, action against children. And now they are told that there's a plague. Yes, really I mean, great point. This is a horrible thing, and it's all connected. Yep. The people point. for the green capitalism are the same people who are doing this now. So yep. it's a great point. Corey? I'm just adding to what Hiroyuki just said. Children are the sacrificial lambs straight across the board, right? And it's never, I mean, this is the moment if we're ever going to advocate for children, this is the moment now. And when... I mean, we can't go back and change, but right now, right this moment, going forward, we can do that. Johan? Yeah, yeah I, used to, I just think, I think you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, John, but there's, there's some kind of appeal to this calamity, to this apocalypse in all of this, which I think makes uh, resistance and critique difficult 
difficult in another sense. I remember when I was, I think I was 12 years old and I read Stephen King's The Stand uh, about this global plague. And, and I, was so, I was so attracted to this story because in some sense it meant the liberation from, from all of all this, uh, this oppressive uh, structure that I, being quite a, priv a quite privileged, privileged kid even could um, could sense in in a profound manner so we we do desire this apocalypse we do desire this reset it has an enormous appeal in the middle of all these difficult issues these are great concluding remarks um and and next time we can dig into more um i think on junk science computer modeling um this stuff has been used as 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 propaganda has been weaponized as propaganda um but it's all of a piece isn't it all right thank you all this was a great talk thank you hiroyuki thank you Corey. thank you johan um and uh, i'll let you guys know when this podcast is up but um this was really great i think thank you everyone bye okay bye 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 bye, -bye. <laughs> bye, -bye.